Welcome to the Pious Podcast. My name is Meshach Canyon. I'm the host, and I'm really thankful uh, that you have chosen to join this morning as we talk about our lives in the kingdom of God as we continue working our way through the book of Daniel. Uh, just wanted to express my gratitude to each and every one of you. Uh, every now and again, I, I, um, you know, I look at the analytics. I, I try actually not to look at the analytics because that's when you get depressed about, um, about numbers and you see, you know, what some people are doing on their podcast. But I, I, I was remembering the words a friend shared with me quite some time ago about virality and, and how it's kind of a, a plague on on artistic endeavors. And the idea went along this lines, like before social media, uh, let's say 30 people would have shown up to hear you give a speech, to hear you sing, to view your artwork. Every single last one of us would have been absolutely thrilled. But in the age of going viral, um, you're disappointed unless um, hundreds of thousands of people and and I, I was just reminded of that because I you know every now and again I get notifications about the stats that this channel's uh, doing and I just wanted to express my gratitude um, uh, for the people that tune in I hope it's a help to you I hope that some some way through the conversations that we're having and the topics that we're discussing um, your lives are being enriched and you are uh, finding content that will help you live a more full life in the kingdom of God. Okay, well, so know that I'm grateful for each and every one of you. As we jump into Daniel chapter nine today, this is a, a book on a, ch a chapter on prayer. I would highly recommend that you read through Daniel's prayer and maybe you can uh, make it your own prayer as you do so. But before we get there, we have another question that was submitted and this is about relationships. It's a, real, a, a very good question. Uh, how do we create fulfilling relationships without idolizing and finding worth in them? And by them, I mean, uh, the, I, I assume that the, the person means within the relationships or the people that are involved in the relationship. <clears throat> I'm not actually sure the context of this relationship, if it's a romantic one or a friendship, um, uh, husband and wife, father and son, mother and daughter, or whatever the case may be. Uh, so I'm going to try to speak broadly about this, and uh, but the way I do so, I think it will allow you to um, to apply it to the differing relationships. So how do we create fulfilling relationships without making those relationships or the people within those relationships idols, and without finding our worth in them? There is a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called uh, Life Together that, you know, it's, it's on my list of books that every single Christian should read. Uh, Bonhoeffer is known for being a theological egghead, and a lot of his books take a lot of time and mental effort to get through. Life Together is not one of them. Um, so at least for the chapter on, on being a community of love uh, and in relation to one another, I'd highly recommend it. So to answer this question, I'm just going to read something that he wrote in this passage. And he's, the context is he's talking about how Jesus is a mediator. And we understand that Jesus came as a mediator to stand between human beings and God. Jesus uh, was the one that enables us to come to God, to be reconciled with God. So, so theologically, we see Jesus as the one that's standing between us and mediating our relationship with the Father. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer goes a step further, and he said, Jesus Christ is actually a mediator between a person and everything else, especially when that person becomes a disciple, because it's through Jesus Christ that we're enabled to experience real love and real joy and, and really experience the other, whatever it is, as a gift from God without trying to control it or coerce it. So let me just read the language that... Um, that he applied here. And then, um, and then I'll say a few more words. So he says, human love is directed to the other person for his own sake. Spiritual love loves him for Christ's sake. Therefore, human love seeks direct contact with the other person. It loves him not as a free person, but as one whom it binds to itself. It desires to be irresistible to rule. 
Human love has little regard for truth. It makes the truth relative, since nothing, not even the truth, must come between it and the beloved person. Now, if that's not a word for people in our day, I hope you understand what he's saying. He's he's highlighting what most people mean when they say, oh, I just love that person, or I, I love chocolate cake. They're talking about a, a will to dominate, a will to have, a will to control. Now, it's expressed romantic, romantically, of course, um, but when you really dissect uh, uh, what it's talking about, they are looking at the other object, the other person, the other relationship, or whatever the case may be, uh, from a from a standpoint of of control. I must have it. You know that's that's why. Um, well, I won't I won't apply this, but pay attention when people say uh, love is love. Or, or things like that, really key into what they're saying. Are they making a statement uh, that desires uh, real freedom and real growth for the other? Or are they saying, because I love this, I should be able to do whatever I want? Okay, that was a bit of a deviation. I apologize for that. So, and, and then also the last thing I'll say about that, when he says that uh, human love has little regard for truth, just think about that. Think about that. Okay. So here he's contrasting what human love is, but then he'll, he'll also talk about what spiritual love is. So in kingdom love and spiritual love, he says, Jesus stands between the lover and the other he loves because Christ stands between me and others. I dare not desire direct fellowship with them. As only Christ can speak to me in such a way that I may be saved, so others too can be saved only by Christ himself. This means I must release the other person from every attempt of mine. Listen, I must release the other person from every attempt of mine to regulate, coerce, and dominate him with my love. Thus, spiritual love will speak to Christ about a brother more than to a brother about Christ. It knows that the most direct way to others is always through prayer to Christ and that love of others is wholly dependent upon the truth in Christ. So what he's doing here is he's saying our concept of love, human love, is one to one. It's my wants, my desires, my needs imposed upon the other person. This is most clearly seen in romantic relationships where there's a lot of letdown and a lot of a lot of strife that emerges because of that conflict. But he's saying in spiritual love, there is no one to one. There's one, one, one. There's me, the other person or the other group and Jesus standing between. And that's important for Christian relationships because we understand that God is love. And therefore, since God is love made manifest perfectly through Jesus Christ, if I am to love my wife, if I am to love my coworkers, if I am to love my friends, I must go through Jesus Christ to them to really understand what it means for me to love them. So I hope that makes sense to answer the question. To create fulfilling relationships without idolizing and finding your worth in them, the only way to do that is to have Christ as the mediator in those relationships. Because if Christ is a mediator, then you won't idolize the other. You'll be worshiping God in relation to the other. And you won't find your worth in them because you'll find your worth in Christ. And this is not only true in, in relationships with human beings, but it's true in relationship to other things. Think about people who love their cars, who love clothing, who love their home. All those things are well and good. But the proper way to experience and express our love for those things, if we can use those words, is to have Christ stand between us and the other thing. That way, for instance, you know, I tell people all the time, people always ask me, since I serve churches that are middle class, upper middle class, and some people have a great capacity to, uh, to buy the things of this world. And I've met with so many people, is it, is it wrong for me to have a, and then they'll, they'll ramble off a fancy car, a Porsche, a Ferrari, a BMW, or, or whatever the case may be. And I'll say like, uh, no, there's, there's nothing, nothing wrong with it, but just make sure that the one mediating uh, your relationship to that thing is Christ. Because should Christ come and call you to give up that thing, 
that's going to be a test of of your worship. Are you worshiping Christ or are you worshiping status? So in every relationship, Jesus Christ is the mediator between us and the other thing that we have. Okay. Now, Daniel chapter nine. And by, by the way, I really like that question. It, it, it gave me an opportunity not only to reflect upon uh, my man, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, but my own life and, and making sure that I'm prioritizing Christ in my own life. I often think about that when, um, you know, as a, as a father, I, I recognize how often I want to dominate my kids and make my kids do or be uh, something out of fear, you know, and, you know, moment of vulnerability uh, right now. Some of, some of my, my kids, you know, they're, they're not really doing that great in school. Um, they're doing a lot better than I was, but the fear that they're going to miss out on um, becoming something, it plagues my mind, you know, and it, it really, it, and it, it forces me to want to then take some sort of action <clears throat> to save their future. That's human love. And so I've been shifting my prayers, like not God uh, help so-and-so get straight A's in school or help them get better study habits or whatever, but help me become the kind of person uh, that will enable them to enter into the life that you have for them. Help me become a better dad so that they can become the people that you created them to be. Uh, and that's a, that, that's, that helps me shift my mindset when I realize that it's not just me and my kids, but it's me, Jesus, and then my kids. So if I want to love them well, I must go to, through Jesus Christ in order to do so. Okay. <clears throat> Man, I got something stuck in my throat here. All right. Well, Daniel chapter nine. Once again, this is, this is I think, one of the most important passages in the book of Daniel. It's kind of... Um, planted within a lot of apocalyptic literature. Uh, and, you know, there is some apocalyptic uh, stuff in this chapter as well, but it's a, it's really a chapter about prayer. Uh, that's the emphasis of the chapter. And so, um, again, I would take time to pray it. I've prayed it myself several times this week, um, but let's go ahead and look at what it says. I'm not going to read all of it, uh, but we're just going to kind of work our way through it and really see uh, what it says about prayer, and really what it says about Daniel. This is a chapter for those who want to have a really powerful life in God, Daniel chapter 9. So let me read just the first few sentences. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the book the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Something very interesting is going on in this chapter. So here where it says that I, Daniel, perceived in the book, what it's referring to is Daniel studying the Bible as they understood it. Uh, if, for those of you who know scripture, while the Israelites were exiled in Babylon, uh, if you read uh, Jeremiah, you'll see that Jeremiah was writing and sending letters to the exiles to encourage them um, to, to do all these things. And those, those letters got circulated, and eventually those letters got preserved as canon, as, as scripture, because they contained the word of the Lord. So Daniel's saying, listen, first of all, it, he, he kind of shows his hand. He shows what kind of person he is. He not only reads the letter once, but he reads it uh, in order to perceive. That means he's studying it. John Wesley would say he's searching through the scriptures. And as he's searching through the scriptures, he stumbles upon something. Now, this is this really just caused me to, to pause and reflect upon my own habits of, of scripture study. Because um, I, I think. You know, we live in a time where, and I, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but biblical illiteracy is way too high. I mean, it's way too high. At my previous church, uh, we had Fleming Rutledge, who was an amazing preacher. Uh, she came one time and she preached a message on, I believe it's um, 1 Kings chapter 18, 
uh, where Elijah shows up and, you know, they call him the troubler of Israel. And it's, it's Elijah, uh, famous characters like him, uh, King Ahab, Jezebel. And I remember after she preached, a guy came up to me and he said, like, man, I've never heard of Elijah before. He's an interesting character. And this guy, you know, he attended church faithfully for for years and years. And it just caught me off guard. You've never heard of the prophet Elijah? Like I could see if you've never heard of of a little known figure like uh, Shimei in the story of David. But Elijah, like he's everybody knows Elijah. Even people who don't read the Bible know Elijah. And so that I, I just think about that whenever I consider um, the level of biblical illiteracy uh, that's going on in our day. And it's really, it's holding us back. It, it's not that we need to know the Bible so that we could be really good at trivial pursuit, or we can just say, you know, as it says in Romans three thirty three, or as it says in Philippians 4, 9, no, not so we can just use it um, in ways that are empty and shallow, but we need to search through scripture because within scripture is contained insight about the things that God has done, the things that God will do, and the things that God is doing right now. And that's what we see in this passage. Daniel, they're in exile. He's searching through the scriptures, searching through these letters um, from the prophet Jeremiah, and then he stumbles upon something. Now, I, I did some searching to find out where, you know, he because he referenced uh, the 70 years. Where in Jeremiah does it reference the 70 years? Well, it's in, in Jeremiah chapter 25. In our, in our Bibles, helpfully, it's called the 70 years of captivity. That's what the chapter uh, is titled. Well, in verse 11 and 12, listen to what it says. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are complete, I will punish the king of Babylon in that nation, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I'll bring upon that land all the words that I've uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. So Daniel, as he's searching the scriptures, he realizes God has prophesied this. This is something that God has said uh, that he will do, you know, and and it's I, I was just I was just really grateful for that message because it's, this isn't just something that's true for uh for Daniel's day, but it's true for our day. As we search the scripture, we can still see what God has done. We can still see what God will do through some of the prophecies in the apocalyptic literature, but we can also see what God is doing right now. I, I met with a friend uh, earlier this week who um, this year he started a, a practice of searching through the scripture and just trying to have the, the word of God live in his heart and his mind. And just after a few short weeks, uh, he testified uh, with great delight about hearing a voice guiding him. Those are his words. I heard a voice guiding me during the day. So as he's, you know, talking with his sons and getting impatient, he will hear the voice, you know, and this voice is usually just a passage that he heard being rehearsed in his heart, you know, and it and it just it interrupted the behavioral patterns that he would normally um, that he would normally launch into and it would give him a shot to do what God wants him to do. And, and so that's that's an example of something that God is doing. You know, it may not be as specific as Daniel stumbling upon, uh, oh, we're only going to be here for 70 years and then discovering they're near the end of that 70 year period. But it is still a discovery of something that the Holy Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit is the one who is supposed to sow within us these fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. And my friend in this instance, he stumbled upon that. And as he's studying it and and um, reflecting upon it, when he was about to be impatient with his son, he remembered, oh man, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is patience. That means the Spirit of God is within me right now. Um, and it's possible for me to look to the spirit to receive a portion of that patience so that I can be faithful to my son and to my God in this moment. So reading scripture 
it not only informs the mind, but it recalibrates the heart away from the automatic responses that have been sown within us and towards a new automatic response uh, of faithfulness towards God. That's what Daniel's doing in this passage. He is searching through the scripture and his search through the scripture enables him to discover something that God said within the scripture. And now look what this discovery leads him to do. Verse three, then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So what's happening here? Now, this is real. And I hope I'm not being too much of a, a geek or a nerd, but um, this was a template for me again, on how to have a powerful life with God. So he searched through the scripture. He discovered a promise of God. God said, I'm going to do this thing after 70 years. Now, if I ask you, listen, if God says he's going to do something, what do we need to do to make it happen? What's the answer? Well, most of us would say the answer is nothing. If God said, listen, tomorrow I'm going to rain down calamity upon those wicked people who, who root for the Michigan Wolverines. Oh, well, I mean, there's nothing that we can do, right? God said it. Nobody can stand against God, right? It's been prophesied by his servant, uh, Jeremiah, so it's as good as done. But that's not what Daniel does. And that's not the approach of any faithful in the Bible. When those faithful ones in the Bible discover that God has promised something, their response isn't passivity. Their response is, well, there's nothing we can do. And, and I'm talking about whether it's good or bad. You know, so there's the example of, um, of God telling Moses he's, gonna, um, he's going to destroy the Israelites and start over. And what does Moses do? Far be it from you, O Lord, to do such a thing. Right? He comes back at God. He has a conversation with God. And then there's also the example that I read this week of David when he wanted to build a temple for the Lord. Uh, and the prophet, I believe it was Nathan, at first Nathan said, do so. And then the Lord came back to Nathan and said, no, it, it's not It's not his job to build me a temple. Um, but guess what? You go tell David, I'm going to establish his house forever. Now, this is something that God said he would do. I, the Lord, will establish the house of David forever and his kingdom through his lineage, his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And then David, when he hears the prophet say, this is what God promised to do for you. Guess what David says? Since you have said that you will do this thing for me, I am emboldened to pray that you will do it. Right. God promises God's promises whether good or bad, lead to his people to pray. God's promises are meant to lead us to pray, not just to be like, oh, well, I guess it's good as done then and, and not do anything, but to pray, to pray for either mercy or to pray that God will fulfill his word. In this instance, when Daniel sees that God promised to deliver Israel after 70 years, he begins to pray that it would happen. So here's the lesson. Searching the word of God reveals God's promises to us, whether it's a positive promise or a negative promise. God revealed that he would exile them if they disobeyed his commands and God did it. But if you search through the discovery of God's promise that they'll be exiled, you'll see that the people prayed that it wouldn't happen, hoping that God would relent. Right. But God's promises that he will deliver them, they're also revealed in scripture and his people pray that it would happen. Right. So there's no reason for any of, of us to be caught off guard off guard. So discovering God's promises reveals what God will do. OK, first we search the scripture. We discover God's promises. When we discover God's promises, we see what God said that he would do. Knowing or discovering what God said that he will do inspires us to pray, not to be passive, but to be prayerful. And this is actually what it means to pray in faith. It's a prayer that's rooted in knowledge of what God said. Therefore, we can ask confides. You guys know what confides mean, the Latin? Confides is where we get the word confidence. And it simply means with faith. That's what confides mean. 
with faith. So that's what a prayer of faith is. It's a prayer that's established upon the promises of God. You see, a, a lot of people, a lot of people, they um, they think that faith is praying to discover what God will do, but that's that's the exact opposite of of faith. You know, for for example, I, I mentioned Elijah earlier. You guys may remember that story of uh, of Elijah when he prayed that it would rain, and then what, or that it wouldn't rain. Uh, he actually, I, this is one of the scriptures I've memorized. I believe it's First Corinthians, First uh, Kings eighteen, where it says um, uh, Elijah came to King Ahab and he said, um, "As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be no rain or dew." Until I say so. Now, this is what this is something that Elijah said. Where did he get the boldness to make that promise? And I'm sorry, I don't have the passage uh, here before me. I think it's in Deuteronomy 25 or something. But in Deuteronomy 25, God promised Israel that if they had, if they turned away from him, then he would shut up heaven so that there'd be no more rain or no more dew. Elijah sees that. Elijah sees what God has promised, and then he also sees that Israel has turned against the living God. And so he just simply goes to God and he says, hey, God, this is what your word says. Your people are doing what your word has commanded them not to do. So according to your word, shut up heaven and keep the rain from coming. You see, that's what it means uh, to pray in faith. That's why in James, it says Elijah was a man just like we are, and he prayed for it to not rain, and then it didn't rain. So it's it's kind of teaching us what it means to, to pray properly. It's a, it's a prayer that's rooted on the promises of God, not a prayer to kind of work ourselves up to discover what God may do, but it's a prayer that's based off of what God said he would do, right? This is why, you know, like prayers for healing, many people go to God and they say, oh, Lord, oh, if it be thy will, oh, what is that? What is that? You go to God understanding what God's will is, and then you pray that way. It doesn't mean that God will do the thing you prayed for. You know, when when some of the prophets and the priests prayed that God would relent and not send the Israelites into Babylon, God still sent them there. But they prayed, understanding that God is merciful and kind, and that based off of God's propensity to offer mercy and kindness, he may relent. But we don't pray wishy-washy prayers, um, if it be thy will, and this and that. We do that because we are thinking that, um, that the strength of our prayers, like praying a certain way, is what will move God to perhaps act. But what moves God to act is when his people discover his promises and then pray that those promises may be realized and then God may act. Right. So that's this is what this passage really taught me this week. Daniel searched the scriptures. Man, how how often are you searching the scriptures? And this is this convicted me, you know, you know how much I, I search the scriptures only when it's time for me to preach. That really convicted me a few years ago. I realized, man, it's been years since I've read the Bible just to study it, just to see what God has done, just to to read stories about Jesus, to hear the biblical narrative and and just have it bless my soul or challenge me in some way. And I realized, man, I, I need to be more. Uh, I need to get in the word a lot more than I've been, you know, and I remember uh, that that week, actually, when I decided this, uh, I challenged myself to read one of the Gospels once a day. And man, it reoriented my life uh, for that week because I didn't do it in one sitting, but I'd, I'd sit down and I'd read a few chapters in the morning, a few chapters in the afternoon, a few chapters in the evening, a few chapters before going to sleep. And so it it interrupted my day into those four quadrants, but it man, it nourished my soul. And I discovered so many things that I had uh, forgotten. And that's what happens now. Every time I read through uh, the Bible right now, I'm in Second uh, Samuel and I'm hearing stories that I hadn't read in a long time. And they're reminding me of of what God is like and and what God calls his people to be in relationship to him. 
Um, and imagine if many Christians did that, if we were all searching through scripture, just imagine how richer Bible studies would be and how much more powerful sermons would be if not just the pastor, but the people were searching through the scriptures. And then think about what it'd do to our prayer lives. Man, if, if when we discover what God has promised for our families, for our own lives, for our nations, if we discover what God has promised for, uh, for our finances, you know, so many people, they leave finances into the hands of prosperity gospel ministers. And then we forget that God actually did say some things about the financial health of his people. And God did promise that if we live in certain ways, then he would do certain things. Now, if we read those promises and then we we threw them back to God and we said, God, uh, you said that you would. Uh, for example, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. If we said all that to God and we said, okay, Lord, you are my shepherd. This And you promised to do these things, to take care of us, to lead us uh, by green pastures, quiet waters, to restore our soul. You promised that we wouldn't have any needs because you're taking care of us. That's a promise that we can stand on with God. Now, it doesn't mean that we, we can be reckless, but it means we can be faithfully responsible. I feel myself preaching, um, so let me, let me keep it moving. Okay, so that's the, that's the model. This is the model of the entire chapter. Daniel searching through the scriptures. He finds a promise that God made. That promise leads him to pray. And that prayer is one that's rooted on the promise that God made. It's not an empty prayer. It's a faithful prayer. And so next, Daniel turns to, now we, we turn to the content of his prayer. Now, let me just read a few verses for you in verse four. I prayed to the Lord, my God, <clears throat> and I made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servant, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. Now, I want to I want to stop there for a second, because that is an important um, part of what inspired Daniel and many of the faithful ones to pray to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. What is righteousness? Now, the way we answer that question is really going to impact our interaction with God. What is righteousness? And maybe you want to just write down your own answer to that question real quick. When you hear the word righteousness, when you read it in the Bible, you hear the minister say it in, in the sermon, um, or maybe you hear it in another context, what do you think righteousness is? Now, many have the perspective that righteousness is uh, like has to do with punishing evil, right? So a judge is righteous when they enact the kind of punishment that brings justice to a certain um, condition or certain situation. Indeed, in the uh, I believe in, in the Latin, um, righteousness was translated to mean justice. If you are a fan of ethics, you'll 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 know that um, that Aristotle. Um, he understood righteousness to mean justice. And when we understand righteousness to mean justice, punishing bad, punishing evil, then sadly we'll have a view of God as punitive. We'll understand that God is righteous, but since we'll see that righteousness means pun the punishment of evil, we'll understand that God exists to punish evil, to take care of bad things. And a lot of people have this perspective in fact, Martin Luther had this perspective, if, if many of you are familiar with church history. Remember when Martin Luther was going about trying to, um, trying to live a really good life? That was because he understood that God was righteous, and then that means that God punishes bad. Well, if God punishes bad, then what must I do in order to avoid that kind of punishment and to be on the good side of God's righteousness? I must become a really good person. And so he worked himself ragged trying to um, trying to become good. Uh, but he realized, man, if this is not working, this is impossible for me. And so he had to discover a different 
definition of the righteousness of God, right? If we see righteousness as that inner quality of goodness, then we'll see God as committed to what is best, whether we experience what is best as good for us or not. Righteousness is the inner quality of God's goodness. It's it's what makes someone a really good person or to use a, a simple word, it's integrity that it's that intrinsic integrity that enables someone to be really good, whether someone is watching or not to keep their word, whether anybody knows about it or not. So it was God's righteousness that led him to punish Israel and send them into exile, not because he just wanted them to pay for their sins, but because he saw that them going down this road will be really good for them in the long run. This would be a catalyst to help them reform and help them repent and help them uh, enter into right relationship with me once again and have a really good life. So and then it was his righteousness that led him to deliver them. That's what righteousness is. Many of us who have been parents or grandparents, we know that if your child is becoming wayward, you know, you and, and if you want their good and desire their good, what are you going to do? Well, to try to help them, you may punish them in some ways. Now, now, I didn't say abuse them. I said punish them. You may do something to disrupt their uh, negative behavior, to open their eyes, to, to make cause them to become alert to the path that they are traveling down. And to them, it may not be really good. You know, nowadays to take a kid's cell phone away from him, man, you may as well exile him on a beach somewhere. Uh, to just cut him off from all his relations. And that won't feel good to him. But that may be the only way sometimes that you can open up um, their ears so that they can hear what's really going on and see what's really going on and see where their path is leading. And it, it would be your righteousness, your commitment to do what is good for them that would lead you to do something that in the present moment is experience is something that's bad for them. And the same is true if your child is excelling. When your child is excelling, you know, sometimes parents will um, incentivize good behavior. Well, if, you're, if your kid does, you know, you, you do see that your kid um, helped the, the neighbor mow her lawn, right? And, and you have promised, like, man, I, anytime you guys do good, you're, you're going to get some good things out of me. Well, in that case, your righteousness would lead you to incentivize the good behavior because you've made a promise and you want to commit to that promise. Well, Daniel attributes the righteousness uh, of God to God's um, desire to or God's internal reality that he has integrity. Therefore, he's going to be a person that keeps uh, his word and. Um, and his integrity is going to lead him to do what is good and what is best in every situation. He knows that God made a promise when he entered into covenant with Israel. And since God is righteous, he knows that God will keep his promise. And that's why that's what inspires Daniel to pray, because he knows that God is a covenant keeping promise keeping God. And therefore, when he sees that God has promised to deliver Israel after 70 years, that's what leads him to pray like and his prayer is, OK, God, you said you would do it, but do it. His prayer also includes, <clears throat> um, you know, a recognition of the glory of God. So I'm just so impressed. I'm not going to be able to read through the entire chapter today. In fact, I'd like you all to read through some of it. But as you do pay attention to how much glory he attributes to God, you know, and, and think about this in terms of our prayer. It's not that when we pray, we have to use all these words because God won't listen unless we say, God, you are great and, and awesome and merciful and kind. And as soon as we say like six or seven righteous attributes, God is appeased and then he'll actually listen to us. But but he, he includes this because it reveals what he understood God to be, you know, Many people, when they pray nowadays, their approach to God is so casual. We we take the Lord's Prayer and we misunderstand what Jesus uh, has meant. And so we, we kind of have this um, 
uh, God is our dad approach where it's, it's so casual and, you know, we don't have to understand the grandeur and the, the honor of God. We can just approach God with a kind of laissez-faire thing and not recognize the dignity or not, not recognize the one uh, whom we are approaching to pray to and to speak to. Daniel teaches us, man, we, we got to know the God that we're approaching. Because if we know the God that we're approaching and we know uh, and we recognize his glory, then we'll come to him correctly. We'll, we'll realize that in coming to him, man, I'm, I'm messed up. I'm unclean. You know, listen to what he says in verse uh, seven. To us is open shame as this day, the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, uh, we're, we're, shamed, we're ashamed of what we've done. Now, think about that. They're living in Babylon at the time, and many of them are extremely prosperous. Daniel's the third in command. So for all intents and purposes, and purposes, he's leading a really good life. But when he comes before God, he recognizes like, okay, Lord, the fact that we're here in Babylon is because we have engaged in shameful behavior. And he confesses that to God. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, his life is great right now. He has power. He has privilege. He has status. He has the heir to the king. But when he comes before God, God, I'm ashamed of what we've done that led us to be in this position anyways. But then verse nine, to the Lord, our God belongs mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled. Man, see, Daniel, Daniel, he knows that God is the God he's praying to is merciful that he forgives. He knows that. He knows. He doesn't think. He knows. Sinclair Ferguson, he wrote, Daniel's praying was clearly people-oriented, but it was God-centered. The bottom line of his heart cry was, save your people, Lord, for your own sake. I'm just so impressed by, by Daniel in this chapter. Um, I'm impressed by what he teaches us on how to pray well. It's prayer that begins in our searching of the scripture that leads to our discovering of the promises of God that leads to us praying because we understand that God is righteous and God being righteous means that he has a steadfast commitment to doing what is good. And on the basis of that, we go to God, not in a kind of casual way, but we go to God just as we are confessing our faults, our failures, but understanding that God's covenantal righteousness is going to lead us to uh, re repentance and to an experience of the life that he wanted for us all along anyways. All right. So re read through this. I, let me jump to um, verse 20, where the angel Gabriel shows up. Uh, in verse 20, it says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. What does Gabriel's appearance uh, mean? First of all, for, for those of us New Testament people, we know that when Gabriel shows up with a message, it's huge and it's related to the Messiah. Now, we know that from uh, from the Gospels. But you, you rewind a few hundred years and you'll see that in Daniel, Gabriel showed up. So this should be an indication for us that are reading the Bible backwards of what Gabriel's uh, going to communicate. He's going to say something about that time when that man, Jesus, is going to show up on the scene. But he comes. OK. What does this teach us about God? It teaches us that God hears our prayers when we pray. God hears. God hears our prayers. When Daniel was praying, he sent Gabriel immediately to go and give Daniel insight and understanding. So, you know, 
away with all that nonsense that God never hears your prayers. God hears. God hears. He won't always send an angel to respond to you, but God does hear. And in this instance, God, he sees what Daniel's praying for. He sees that Daniel is lifting up this promise that God made. But Daniel didn't understand the promise properly or completely, I should say. He understood it properly, but he, he had an incomplete understanding. And so God sent Gabriel to give him insight and understanding. Why? Well, what would Daniel do with fuller understanding? If his incomplete understanding led him to pray, then what would a fuller understanding lead him to do? Pray more. Pray more. This is how much God wants our prayers to be a part of his work is that he's, he hears Daniel praying about the 70 years thing, and then he's like, hey, Gabriel, uh, Daniel needs some help, um, and I want Daniel's help. He doesn't need his help, but I want Daniel's help. So go down to him and help him understand what the, the prophecy of the 70s means, right? Isn't that great? That when That's what happens when you study your Bible and you pray. God will open up your mind to give you a fuller revelation so that you can pray better, Man, I remember, um, oh man, as I was, I can't remember what it was, but um, I believe the Holy Spirit revealed to me, like uh, I was studying something about how humans change and what what holds us back in, in the way we change. Um, and, oh, it was, it was a neuroscientist that was a Christian and it was a book on spiritual formation and I was, and, and what he had to say unlocked some deeper understanding in the writings of Paul and Peter and these things. And it helped me begin uh, changing my prayers. Like, like not only God, please, um, please deliver me from bad habits, but God, now that I understand the neural networks in the brain and, and how, how those habits are formed as, as these uh, neurons are firing off and creating these pathways, I began to change my prayers for myself and for other people that God would, um, that God would uh, let those uh, habits of unrighteousness get overgrown, as it were, with uh, like with with junk, so the path isn't easily traveled, and then create new habits of grace that would allow the person who is struggling. You see what I'm saying? It was a revelation that God sent me uh, to understand about change that helped me pray better. And that's that's really God's goal. God wants us to participate in his work. And so where we have incomplete understanding that comes from reading his word, God will give us fuller understanding. Sometimes it may come through angelic intervention. Many times it comes through a sermon, a Bible study, a song, a podcast or something like that. So I'm going to end it right here because I've been man, I'm almost at 50 minutes. God wants us to pray. And God wants our prayers to be prayers of faith. So as we're searching the scriptures and we're discovering God's promises that leads us to prayer, when we begin praying about those things, don't be alarmed when when in some way God just keeps on deepening your understanding of what his promises means so that you can pray some more, so that you can pray some more. In this instance, Daniel discovered that uh, he'd been understanding that this, the 70 years related to Israel's return to Jerusalem. God wanted him to see that there wouldn't be a normal return to the temple, but one was coming in whom the very spirit of the living God would dwell, one who would put an end to sin and atone for iniquity, namely Jesus Christ. And how would this help Daniel's prayer life? Well, obviously now he can pray that Years after Daniel had died, he could pray for this coming one, for the success of his ministry, for the impact that he would have on people, right? Just a beautiful thing. I wonder what God has in scripture that's waiting to be revealed to someone that will commit to searching through the scripture and praying according to God's promises and according to God's righteousness. Maybe it will be your faithful searching of the scriptures that once again, sends Gabriel or another angel or somebody else to announce something that God has promised to do and is ready to do. And is just desiring the prayers of his people to cooperate with him. Could it be? Maybe. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for
Daniel chapter 9. Father, I pray for each and every person who has listened to this episode. I pray, God, that you would instill within them a strong desire to search the scriptures and that you would open their eyes, give them revelation knowledge of some of the promises that you have sown within scripture. Help them see it and set them off to pray. Set them off to pray. Make us a prayerful people. Please, God, make us a prayerful people that pray in faith based on discoveries of what you promised to do and a knowledge of your righteousness. Let that be their portion. Let it be my portion. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, sisters and brothers, uh, next week we're going to be in Daniel chapter 10. Um, We may do 10 and 11 uh, together. In fact, I may just do a summary of the last three passages uh, because, as I said again, I'd like to move on to a, a study that would be more harmonious with something I'm doing at church but but we'll see I don't want to I also don't want to cut you guys short so we shall see all right until next time you have a blessed week God bless you